Are we to admit we've eaten the mooncake yet or are about to? Um, let's, let's say that we've, we're going to eat it. Yes, definitely going to eat that mooncake. It looks lovely. Oh yes, tr truly a delight. Hello Andy. Hello Rick. How are thee? I'm good. I am very good. Bit of a sore throat again, but it's going, so it's getting there. That's good to know. I, uh, well, I said I was good before, but I'm actually also a little bit sad. Why is that? Because the sun has set on the little Pragyan rover and the Vikram lander. Literally or metaphorically? Both. Both. It is both, because it was solar powered. The uh, Chandrayaan-2 orbiter was trying to recover it, or the satellites were trying to recover it. I think there were three ground stations that were trying to make contact with this poor little distressed lander and rover, but alas, they couldn't do it. And because it was solar-powered, and it is now entering the lunar night, it is gone for good. So let's pull one on the curb for poor little Pragyan and Vikram. Oh dear. Uh, is that it? Are they going to give up? Not, no, of course they're not going to give up. Uh, they already had Chandrian 3 in the works, which will contain a rover and a lander, so I think they will just try to learn from their mistakes. Um, Sorry, they in this sense are... The ISRO, the Indian Space Agency. Uh, but yeah, they're, they've, got, they've got a lot of plans, actually, not just with Chandrian 3. They're working on a space station, and they're also going to do a space vehicle which is going to be the first manned space mission, which is called the Gaganyan, because there's many Indian languages. It's Sanskrit for space vehicle. So they're actually going to do a manned mission to space at some point, and they've allotted $1.5 billion for that. So when you, thought, when you think that the Chandrian missions cost $150 million, this is 10 times as much to put a man into space. Oh, cool. So, yeah, they're really going for it. Yeah, yeah, they're really doubling down on this. I know there's not a lot to say here other than, yeah, Chandrian 2 is partial success, Vikram and Pragyan are now gone, but I think it's just kind of like a ni nice uh, closing of the book, end of the chapter, and I'd like to end on the quote from the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Be courageous. Our faith in ISRO, the Indian Space Agency, has not lost. I can proudly say that the effort was worth it, and so was the journey. We are full of confidence that when it comes to our space program, the best is yet to come. So I've got more follow-up for you. Uh, yes, this is the gel on the moon. Well, we did establish last time that it wasn't gel. It was uh, a glassy-like substance because it was the translation mis mishap from the Chinese press release of the U-22 rover. I, I'm I not saying it yet. I still think that joke's funny. <laughs> Do you like U-22, Rick? I, I still don't think it's funny, but... Maybe maybe next uh, next podcast. Uh, last podcast we talked about how they were going to send the rover actually over towards the centre of the crater where it spotted this substance and it's actually taken uh, a photo of it. A crap photo. It was, yeah. If you're watching this on the YouTube channel, here is the photo of it now. The crater's in the shadow and there's also this kind of like green rectangle and a little red circle over it. This is obscuring the image. That's because it's coming from a certain camera that's on the lander. Uh, this camera being the VNIS camera, which stands for Visible and Near Infrared Spectrometer Camera. So they, they were basically cobbling together a load of images from it. From the photo that they managed to take, it's kind of confirmed the suspicions or 
<laughs> we can infer from these suspicions that they think that glass is what it is, which is a coherent microbreccia, which is broken fragments of minerals cemented together and makes like glassy, black, shiny substance, which is basically what they described in the press release last time. No, that's cool. Um, and what did that mean? Scientifically, someone has been up on the moon glass blowing. Uh, not quite. No, it just means that this crater was big enough to actually melt the rock, convert it into lava, and actually make some glass out of the dust and the sand that's on the surface. And uh, this is actually very similar to some of the Apollo samples that were collected. The snappily titled 70019, uh, which was collected by Harrison Schmidt, a trained geologist who was part of the Apollo 17 mission, he collected this sample from a fresh crater which was roughly the same size that uh, the U-22 rover was in. So yeah, it was reported as gel, mistranslated, and now it's glass. Uh, but the better photos and the actual readings of the spectrometer might not be released for another year. The Chinese space agency is obviously a little cagey about this because they're, well, They've sent the rover up basically looking for rare rare minerals and resources, like they say it's for scientific merit, but we can pretty much infer that it is there to scout out of which bits of the moon to mine. Old-timey prospector <laughs> type, type of rover. <laughs> heading out west, see? Actually, they wouldn't be heading out Well, west. I go and find myself some gel now. <laughs> I was glass. Oh, it's that fool's moon rock. I wanted that moon rock, but it's the fool's moon rock. And so on and so forth. <laughs> but it was quite exciting to think that there was this gel-like stuff found on the moon. But unfortunately, it was just bog-standard moon glass. So has science moved on at all because of that discovery? Was it special glass in any way, shape or form? Or we just don't know yet? That's kind of nice to confirm that what you think is there is actually there. So uh, think of it as another confirmation. Ah, cool. But um, we've not discovered anything. Not yet. Ah. Not yet. So is this a spoof story? Um, Australia will help NASA to get to the moon. No, no, this is uh, an actual news story. All right, it's probably me just being racist. Yeah, so why would you... Why, why did NASA need help from Australians? They're getting help from everyone. They're getting help from Canada, they're getting help from Japan, and they're getting help from other American companies as well. Oh, right, so it's not just Australia. Okay, cool. Because I was, I was just imagining, like, you're right, NASA. I've got a ladder. I'll, I'll get you nearer. We can get a couple of joeys together. <laughs> I'm so sorry for any Australian listeners. My accent is pretty atrocious. We can only do it because we know Australians have a sense of humour. Uh, yeah, Australia has pledged $150 million, or $150 million dues, towards uh, the space program, and they are going to build and contribute robotics, automation, and remote asset management systems. Uh, the same asset management systems that they use in their uh, coal mining operations. So nothing to do with mining the moon. It's basically everyone mining the moon at the moment. I think so, yeah. Right. It just seems to be this big lump of gold that everyone is after. Um, but they have pledged 150 million dollar dues and they're gonna help NASA get to the moon. They've already helped them out in the past actually. They were handling the initial videos from the Apollo 11 
yeah. historic walk, and they were also some of the as was things. shown as as was shown in the uh, the film The Dish. <laughs> I haven't seen oh, it. You, you know, it's a good film. Okay. Um, I think it's The Dish. Better just check that. If it's not, Andy will change it. The Dish is a 2000 Australian film that tells a somewhat fictionalised story of the Parks Observatory's role in relaying live television of man's first steps on the moon during the Apollo 11 mission in 1969. And there's a nice poster here with a sheep on it. Yeah, it's a somewhat tongue-in-cheek version of um, what Australia did during the moon landing. Oh, so so is it a satire? It's kind of humorous, but it's not... No, it's not a spoof. It's a a genuine sort of... um, Homage or a, a love a tribute? Tribute, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's no, it's a genuine sort of. You know, we're proud of this. Um, so what? The cast list is brilliant. You've got Sam Neill, Patrick Warburton. Well, you got two. <laughs> <laughs> As in, those are the two names that jump out at me, and those are like quite high build, especially Sam Neill. Yeah. Like he was four years after Jurassic Park, so still a yeah. pretty pretty high up. It explains why the. Um, when they were moving the dish to track the rocket, there was this T-Rex still chasing him. <laughs> Must go faster. Must go faster. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a yeah, it's a nice tribute, homage, uh, tongue-in-cheek, with a bit of uh, sort of drama added in of stuff that I don't think probably happened, but you've got to add in. Oh, uh, okay. I, I won't spoil it by saying, oh, this happened, but... Oh, is it kind of just like, right, we're about to go live now. Oh, no, it's not plugged in. That sort of thing. (laughs) Where's the outlet? Where's the outlet? Yes, it it, it literally did have the, uh, we need to replace the fuel or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's one of those films. You know, mild peril or whatever they call it. Would this make a great film to watch on Boxing Day? Yeah, it's just, I was going to say it's your Sunday afternoon film. Okay. It's, it's the sort of, all right, get around the family. No, no one will be offended, but it's not sufficiently childish. Back to this story. Actually, is there anything else to say about this story? Sorry, I, I interrupted you. You said uh, Australia have helped NASA before with one tracking the original Apollo landing, which I said was in the, uh, the dish, and then we got sidetracked. What was the other thing they've helped NASA with? Provide land-based communication links for orbiting manned flights for NASA. Okay, yeah. So That's I, broadly because they're on the other side of the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They've done this for other countries as well. Like, they did this for... Um, they will have done this for the Sputnik missions as well. So when Sputnik 2 was going around the world, they originally planned for it to just broadcast when it was over Russia, but you can't have that much pinpoint accuracy this early on in the space race. So some of Australia, because it was going over Kamchatka, so a bit of New Zealand and some of Australia would have got it as well. Oh, cool. And did they track it? Yeah, everyone did. Everyone tracked Sputnik. Uh, But that was the whole point of it. It was kind of like, look what we did. Isn't this brilliant? Uh, You can learn all about this from my Sputnik 2 video. Fantastic. Link in the show notes, which are really, really good, by the way. They've got timestamps and everything. (laughs) Very good. I watch them religiously. No, just on a, a random thing. I remember when I joined the industry, one of my first jobs was to do the security for a downlink of a satellite system for the Americans. And I was like, well, why, why am I doing a, an American downlink? Why can't they do it? And why are they downlinking in Britain? Can't they, yeah. can't they do their own thing? And then it was politely explained to me as well. They could wait till their satellite sort of goes all the way back around the Earth and gets back to America, but they might as well just chuck all the data down to the satellite station in the UK and we fibre optic yeah. across the Atlantic. And then they've got more room on their satellite SD card or equivalent. I imagine now that is actually a urgent thing that you have to do, given how much crap is in space at the moment, that you can just say, right, we've got our data, get it down to Earth before a hunk of random space debris just 
shoots through our satellite. And while there is a lot of space out there, there is also a lot of space debris out there. Yeah, uh, yeah, I should have known that Australia have a fantastic thing to provide, which is their ability to be nowhere near anywhere else. <laughs> so. Foreign moon news now. Yes. What are them foreign moons up to? Well, in this instalment of Foreign Moon News, we go to Saturn and the Saturnian moon of Enceladus. Have you heard of this moon before? Yes, it was in Harry Potter. I believe it's a spell. <laughs> Is it actually? No, <laughs> it just sounds like it. You, you just go, Enceladus, and suddenly a ring appears around them of stones. <laughs> Uh, Enceladus is a icy moon of Saturn. It's not the biggest, uh, that's Titan, but it's still fairly big, so it's under its own weight, it's spherical, and it's a really, really interesting moon. It has an icy surface, and it has cryovolcanoes all over it, to the point where there's been actual photographs of these volcanic eruptions sending all this plumes of icy water out into space. Yeah, can you remind us what a cryovolcano is? A cryovolcano is like a rocky lava volcano, but instead of lava, it shoots out cold water, saline, and sometimes ice. So think of it as an ice volcano, hence cryo. Ah, cool. I just imagine it's always a toy for a little Irish teenager. Hey. You're having bad times there, old Seamus at school. Well, tell your troubles to the cryovolcano. Oh my god. It's always a little journey with these yarns of yours. Where you're like, where is he going with this? I thought you were going to go along the lines of it's a volcano that whinges and cries and moans. So instead of like a catastrophic boom, it's just a wah. Like when a, a toddler falls over, you hear the splat and then the like an air raid siren. No. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I, 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 I preferred my Irish accent. Well, we'll see which joke makes the cut. Yeah, that's it. It'll go to editing. Right, so that's a cryovolcano. Yes, that's what a cryovolcano is. It is an ice volcano. And Enceladus is fairly close to Saturn, as are some of its other moons, such as Mimas and Tethys. Thes Tethys? I'm going to say, call this Tethys. Uh, by the way, you will have seen an image of Mimas already because like, its surface is taken up by one massive crater to the point where it looks like a Death Star. Oh yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, yes. that, that's kind of like... That one looks like a Death Star. It's, it's kind of like the poster boy of moons uh, of Saturn. So when anyone's like trying to get people into moons, they're like, hey, check out Mimas, it looks like a Death Star. Uh, I'm guilty of that myself, so... But when they do it, and they're not you, they're Americans. Yeah. And some sort of uh, sleazy weird... car salesman yeah. hoiking you moon facts. No, you, you come to the grade A pure stuff. Come to me. Come to lunatic. Getting back on track. Uh... <laughs> Is there an English-speaking country you haven't made fun of so far this podcast? <laughs> Canada, I'm looking at you. Those filthy hoses. <laughs> Getting back on track. Enceladus, uh, the icy moon of Saturn, is thought, well, actually, it's, there's been some solid research into this, is uh, causing snowfall on the other moons of Saturn, the other ones close by to it, such as Mimas and Tethys. Sorry, how's it doing? I read that in your notes, and I said, right, so how's it causing snow somewhere else? So, the cryovolcanoes are erupting lots of ice on Enceladus. They're shooting out this icy water with ice particles. They go right up into the sky, 
above Enceladus and they rain down onto the moon's surface. But because these moons aren't very big and the force of the volcanoes is so strong, it actually escapes from the moon's gravitational pull. It will it contributes to some of the rings around Saturn, such as the E-ring, for example. You, you can actually follow when a cryovolcano erupts and then you'll see the plume actually migrate into the ring. It's like some gorgeous photos, but it's not just gonna go into these rings, it's also gonna accumulate into actual snow that will rain or snow down onto Mimas and Tethys. That's cool. The moon's close by. And uh, I'm gonna put up a graph here on the YouTube video uh, that shows the moons closest to Enceladus are the brightest moons. They have something called a high albedo, which is basically a measure of how reflective something is. And the moons closest to Enceladus, the ones pumping out all these ice and snow, those are the brighter ones. And the further away you get from it and the further away from Saturn you get, the duller the surface. There'll be other contributing factors as well, but the main one for, uh, for these moons high albedo or high reflectivity is snow. So it's like, yeah, when I remember going skiing or and being told to take sunglasses. I was like, well, why, why, why do I need sunglasses if I'm going skiing? Because it's not sunny. And that you're, but it is like you will get sun in your eyes from the sky and then shed loads from just looking at the snow constantly. Did you, uh, did you learn your lesson? Did you not take sunglasses or did you heed the warning? Uh, I, I heeded the warning because um, probably about 12 or something. So <laughs> I, I had sunglasses packed for me, oh. uh, as it were. But, uh, yeah, so I thought, oh, that's a, that's a bit odd. So I, if I'm going to Mimas or Tethys, then I will need sunglasses. Uh, yes, yes, you will, because it'll be pretty, pretty bright there. But there are other reasons why these moons are reflective as well. Uh, so the person who led this study... Alice Legal from the University of Paris, she said that while obviously this snow is gonna cause light to reflect off these moons, there's other things going on here because they're reflecting more than the snowfall's been detected because they're like putting radar on them. The radar can only go so deep. And basically the depth of the radar doesn't quite correlate to how reflective these surfaces are. So they're modeling the moons and they think there are some certain icy structures on these moons that the same icy structures that are here on earth such as the penitentes which are like thin elongated blades of snow that stick up imagine like a stalactite and stalagmites but made of snow and just on the ground like really pointy angry thin snowmen made of (laughs) (laughs) getting too scientific there Uh, and the other one is uh, a sun cup, which is like a depression of a snowy surface. So it's like when snow has been building up, building up, building up, and it gets really compacted, and then it just gets really reflective. Uh, so they're thinking that beneath this light snowfall that's been coming from the Enceladus cryovolcanoes, there are these uh, sun cups and snowy stalactites, because I can't say that word again. Penitentes. The angry snowman, which is, which I think is pretty interesting. The fact that they made a discovery of, oh, this moon is acting as a, as a snow cannon, as the Express and the Daily Mail and the Sun were happily touting. Um, <laughs> do, they, do they literally say that? Yeah, yeah, they called it a snow cannon. That is a great thing. I'm going to do that now. <laughs> well, it's it's... How, how you remember the moons now. Enceladus is the snow cannon moon. Okay. That's why, because I remember Metis is where we, you have meetings. 
yes. because Io is a volcano. Okay. Planet. Yeah. yeah, that's how I remember moons. I saw a wonderful video online of this grandma naming the Pokemon, having <laughs> not known the names of them, yeah. so she just called them random names. This is what it'll be. So I'd like, if we get to episode 50 of this, it's like, all right, Rick, which moon is this? I'll show you a picture and it'll be like, oh, that's the Barry Picnic moon. I remember it well. Yeah, that's it. Death Star. So Death Star's Mimas. Yes. Cool. Enceladus is the snow cannon moon. Yep. Tethus is just reflective. We don't know anything about it yet. Or... Tethus, uh, it also has a big crater on it, but... That's loads of them. <laughs> Let's be honest. I've learned that much so far on this Moon podcast. Tethys, the wannabe moon. Right. Tethys with no obvious uh, features. Well, it has a big crater on its surface, but not as pronounced as uh, Mimis. Death Star Light. Death Star 1, because Death Star 2 was like twice the size. Okay, cool. Well, I think four times, actually. It was big. It was big. <laughs> They're all fictional. Well, this happens with other moons in the solar system as well. So one of the videos I made, plug in the channel again, the Uranian moon of Oberon uh, is the reddest moon. And that's because the outer moons of Uranus have this red kind of like dust on them. And solar winds will blast this dust off it. And this big cloud of dust will come raining down on the inner moons of Uranus. And the moon that sweeps up this red dust is Oberon, because that's kind of like the outer one and has the best gravitational pull at the time. Um, again, this is in the video, so uh, there'll be a link for it in the show notes. So I've labelled Oberon as this little communist moon because it was the reddest moon. Cool. I, I will remember all the moons. In fact, one, one of the uh, features I thought we should have for the show is like, Start with the innermost moon, and then every episode work out one moon, and then how long would that take to learn each moon? When you say the innermost how, moon... How many moons are there? Confirmed around the planets, you're looking at about 167. Okay, that's a lot of episodes. There is a lot of episodes. <laughs> um, if you're including discovered dwarf planets, that adds another 25 or so. And that's not including asteroid moons, of which there are many. Okay. Well, we'll start with the normal moons, like the proper moons. Uh, <laughs> well, as as muggles call them. Uh, and the innermost one is you take the innermost planet and then the innermost moon. So the innermost planet with a moon is Earth. Yes. Our moon. Right. I've, okay, so I've got this episode to remember that one. <laughs> I'm going to say, you actually know the first three. Uh, moon, Phobos, and Demos. Demos. Yeah. Yes. There you go. Okay, cool. All right. So right, that's first three done. 150-odd to go. <laughs> Tune in next week for the Edemos Jovian moon. Oh, we're taking a big jump then, yeah. Well, that's the next one. Right, okay. <laughs> that's it, the next planet. It ramps up pretty quickly. <laughs> So final thoughts on learning about your new favourite snow cannon moon? Um, yes, it's great. I wish all moons had a snow cannon. <laughs> Hello everyone, it's just Andy here. Uh, just a small disclaimer. Rick and I are about to eat some moon cake and as a good friend pointed out, not everybody wants to hear people chewing food. And while we don't excessively chew the food for a long period of time, it's still just two or three seconds of us chewing and talking with a mouth full. It's obvious we have food in our mouths. The chewing is not excessive, but it's still enough to make some people feel very uncomfortable. So I'm giving you a heads up now. There'll be an exact time code of when you should skip over it in the video description if you don't want to hear it. But like I said, it's not excessive, but it could be enough to make you feel queasy if this is something that upsets you. Again, just a heads up. 
And yeah, let's carry on with the show. Right, what's going on, Andy? We've uh, we've gone from podcast to actual video. There's a thing on my screen. What's what is this? Well, if you're listening to this in a car, then. <laughs> Please don't watch the YouTube video, but watch the YouTube video when you get to your destination or are in a safe location to do so, because I bought some mooncake and I figured it'd be, it was in such a nice little box that I thought we'd actually record some video for it uh, with every light in the flat shining on it um, to try and illuminate it. But yes, this is some honest to God mooncake that I bought. Uh, it's proper Chinese mooncake. Uh, yeah. Can you just remind us why uh, we have mooncake and what it has to do with China? Uh, well, last podcast, we spoke about the moon's birthday as part of the Mid-Autumn Festival, um, which is a Chinese celebration of sorts where they say happy birthday to the moon, have all sorts of other festivities, and they eat mooncake. And with China being a big place, there's lots of different kinds of mooncake you can get. So this particular one uh, is one of the most popular ones and is considered a luxury brand to the point where they charge me quite a substantial amount to actually buy it. Yeah, bear, bear in mind the Pikachu cake I got you was about 10 quid. How much was this mooncake? Uh, this was 33 quid from the local Chinese supermarket. It is available on Amazon as well for 30 quid, but I'm glad I support the local supermarket. Uh, so you say there's a tin, all I can see is a bag. Where on earth is the tin, Andy? The tin is in this very delightful uh, bag. By the way, Wingwa is the name of the mooncake brand, which as you see here. Other mooncake brands are available? They Poss are, but not possibly, in this, but not in this shop. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is the only one that was available there. But yes, this is uh, Wingwa and it's uh, manufactured in Hong Kong, I think, well, originated in Hong Kong, I think it was manufactured in Hong Kong, and some notes I have on it here. It's not local Gloucester mooncake then? Uh, it's not, even though we did, there was a, a cake shop right next to it, uh, Hetty's Bakery. Oh cool. Have you been to, have no. you had any of her brownies? No. They are the best brownies you'll ever have. <laughs> I think we slightly got derailed from the mooncake too. Right, let's put oh, no, it, else's... Uh... No, it's worth it. I, oh, okay, I, cool. I, I trust. Sc screw the mooncake. <laughs> right, tell me more about Hetty's brownies. <laughs> like, she does cream egg brownies. I oh. can go down this tangent if you really want, but yes. I'd rather get back to the mooncake. Considering I shelled out 33 quid for it. Uh, this mooncake has the slogan of one step ahead in setting sail, leader in mooncake production. Uh, and this was from the 1960s. So 10 years before man first walked on the moon. So they didn't basically paraphrase the one small step for man. Yeah, it's not a snappy title without reading it. Cause I can see you're reading it there. If you just look up, what was that catchphrase again? One small cake for moon. <laughs> <laughs> Something like, we set sail on the leadership of production. Oh, well done. One small step in setting sail, leader in mooncake production. Now, I imagine it sounds great in Chinese and it's very eloquent. Like haikus. Like, were you ever taught like how to do haikus in English? Uh, yes. Yeah. And they always sounded naff, but in Japanese, I imagine they sound wonderful. I can't imagine that sounding good, but I, I'll assume in the translation it is good. Yeah, uh, if there's any Chinese listeners, please let us know what it sounds like in Chinese. Uh, this mooncake, however, is traditional Cantonese-style mooncake. So this is made with lotus seed paste uh, and has some 
yolks in the middle to actually symbolize the full moon. In this case, it'll be duck eggs. So, opening this tin in a typical uh, YouTube unboxing fashion, here we have four moon cakes and a nice little leaflet, which... Uh, Let's say, like, do not eat, uh, contains lead. To boost customers' confidence and let them purchase with peace of mind, the Wingwall Group provides the customers the following genuine product verification guide. Oh, cool. Yeah, so if we wanted to verify this, we could. Uh, but we do need to go <laughs> Because to... there's, there's a lot of illegal mooncake, I must point out, going around Gloucester. Uh, oh, you, you heard of the black market yeah, too. Yeah, it's, it's like flipping, please keep raiding houses with illegal mooncake. Not a day goes by where I walk to the car park and there's just a guy in a big trench coat <laughs> going, psst, do you want to buy some mooncake? <laughs> and I just have to pretend that I didn't hear them and just hurry, hurry past. Yeah. But uh, this is genuine? This is genuine mooncake, and we can verify this should we wish to with this could, could dodgy you, Could you verify it though, following those instructions? Yeah, because it's in English. Is it? Oh, right. I it's, thought it was in Chinese. It's got, well, it is mostly in Chinese, but it's also got a QR code, which I'm, I don't want to yeah. basically scan this. The Chinese government will yeah, own your mobile phone. I don't want to do that. It's like, enter your credit card details to make sure they haven't been stolen. Uh, no, thank you. Uh, but these are the mooncakes that come in this delightful tin. Uh, four of them here, each in an individual package. Uh, I think we should open one and have a taste, don't you? Yeah, hang on. Yes. Brilliant. It looks quite nice, that, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, Let's... there's the full moon and some massive flowers that are engulfing the sky. <laughs> but let's open some. There you go, it's professional now. Yeah. So, this is the cake out of its lovely plastic container. And as you can see, it says Wingwa with some lovely Chinese symbols. So let's cut this open and look at the yolk inside, shall we? Yes, why not? And that's cut. So there is the yolk inside that is to be the uh, double moon, so to speak. Oh, cool. So the the images online, they were a lot more circular than this, I can assure <laughs> you. This this looks like a botched moon, like one of the smaller like pebbles that just happens to orbit Jupiter. But no, this is a uh, this is some mooncake. So would you like to try some? Uh, I will. I'll take a whole half, right? Okay, I'll All be right. brave. All right, down the hatch. So the listeners are just gonna hear. Yeah, talk amongst yourselves. Yeah, the listeners are gonna hear us eating. Oh, it's so dry. <laughs> it is um, bland. Very, very bland. Just like wallpaper paste. Do you know what it's like? It's like the early stages of cake batter before the good stuff gets added. Yeah. Like when your mum was making a cake and you knew that, ooh, cake batter, you can have a little bit, yeah. but it's like before the butter and the sugar was added, so it's just like flour and egg. Yeah, it is, yes, just very floury. Well, that's what, that's what the lotus seed paste looks like, which I think is actually the nice bit. It's the yolk that is um, kind of throwing it off. Yeah, this was British mooncake. It would have like cream, <laughs> fruit, meringue. Well, you say this. The high-end mooncakes are like strawberry-filled, chocolate-filled, coconut. They're, they're very westernized now because it's tradition that you give a cake to someone. I'm just gonna put that on there. So it's tradition that you give a cake to someone and because 
in the East, obviously if you have a business, you exchange gifts between client and business. So you want some high-end mooncakes that are sometimes a little tastier than this. So there's chocolate mooncake, there's uh, strawberry mooncake, loads, there's loads out there. So I think I'm gonna hunt down chocolate mooncake for next year. Yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a word or a hyphenated word, anti-climax. Yeah, not worth, not worth it. Five out of 10. Up your game, China. <laughs> so we said we'd talk about Moonraker. Yes, we've missed an episode, as in, missed it on last podcast, but... We did, there was more interesting things to talk about, and while there's a few Moon-related things, Trump seems to be involved, and I don't really want to talk about him at the moment. This is a bit more fun to talk about. Uh, so while we said we'd talk about everything wrong with Moonraker, in this particular case we're talking about three and a half minutes worth, which is from the two minute 30 mark in the film up until the six minute mark. And this is the first assassination attempt on Bond. Uh, yes. So do you want to give a synopsis of what happens in this scene? So in the scene, Bond is being honey trapped by an air steward on a private plane of which she pulls a gun on him. A pilot, so to speak, comes out with a parachute on him. He then says, bye bye, Mr. Bond, shoots the cockpit of the plane, so the plane starts to take a nosedive, assuming that the plane would crash with Bond on board, therefore killing him. Now, as the steward and the pilot go to escape, Bond wrestles with him in the escape exit. Bond pushes out the pilot with the parachute, but lo and behold, Jaws is there. Randomly. He's Randomly. not appeared before. He hasn't appeared before, but Jaws from previous Bond films, the big lanky tall guy that is Bond's nemesis, so to speak, pushes Bond out of the plane without a parachute, thus killing him. But Bond, being Bond, he defies terminal velocity by making himself very, very streamlined. Well, not defies terminal velocity. He makes himself very, very streamlined and catches up with the guy with the parachute, wrestles it off him, putting it on his back and basically condemning the pilot to a very splatty grave. So Bond, victorious, starts to put on the parachute, but then lo and behold, Jaws starts to catch up with him as well. He is wearing a parachute. They begin to tussle. Jaws is about to bite Bond's leg, but Bond pulls the chute, escaping Jaws, and then Jaws goes to pull his, but oh no, the cord breaks and Jaws plummets into a circus tent. And then the credits roll. The worst credit sequence in Bond history. Well, I wouldn't say the worst, but it's, it's pretty bad as part of credit sequences go. Cool, so um, what was wrong with that? Well, I'd say the assassination I... attempt as a start. So yeah, just to confirm the rules on this, we're kind of only doing the scientific stuff that's wrong with it, as opposed to every, you know, thing that's in the background and isn't there on the next scene or those oh, sort of yeah. movie nitpicks. So this is sort of scientifically wrong. So yeah, logic is the first thing we'll pick up on. What were they trying to do logically? If they were trying to kill him by basically putting him on a plane that crashed, surely crash team investigators will go, oh, there was a bullet in the cockpit, therefore it's sabotage. Oh, who was piloting the plane? Oh, it was these guys. They killed him. <laughs> yeah, so they would do that. But it's also, even if they had managed to just super glue Bond to the chair, which <laughs> incidentally, could that may have just been better to do that super glue and tie him with super glue that disappears on a fiery crash. You like, so there's no evidence that he's been super glued. And so he just looks like the only person on the plane. The flight logs would still say that the other person, the, the pilot has rented the plane. It's a charter plane to him. Yeah. Bond 
Bond has is very unlikely to have filled out all the paperwork to yeah. sort of say, yeah, I'm the pilot for that plane. Also, as far as assassination attempts go, step one, honey trap Bond, pull a gun on him. Just shoot him. Well, yeah, that's that. Why not, why not shoot him? Yeah. Because you're, you're giving away the evidence. Yeah, um, exactly. Top science thing. Uh, do you know what a dum-dum bullet is? Oh, dum-dum bullets. Those are the ones that make your head explode if you shoot. Sort of. Um, they, are they hollow point bullets? Yeah, they're sort of bullets that... Uh, yeah, but basically, if you imagine a bullet as a slug of metal, mm -hmm. uh, if you start making incisions in them or making them hollow or otherwise rendering them into a fragile state, they'll fracture on impact, oh. which is illegal under the Geneva Convention because uh, they're harder to treat, so you're allowed to just shoot someone uh, in war um, under certain conditions, but you're not allowed to use, say, dum-dum bullets and fracture inside them because there's no military justification for that. However, if you look at... The internet, there are sort of dumb dumb or fracturing bullets for sale. Oh. And the uh, Guess which country this is in. Oh, I can hazard a guess. Are they for hunting purposes? Uh, yeah, well, they're, no, they're for home self-defence, I think, is the, uh, the thing. Because the situation is you've got uh, an attacker and your family member standing behind them. So if you shoot the attacker, it'll, the bullet will fracture into them and therefore not harm your family member. Um, oh, just scar them for life. Well, well, that's it. It, it. That's the United States, uh, in case you were wondering which country it was. Oh, remember, the, guns don't kill people. Bullets do. Yes. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, the United States Air Marshals. Yes. Who sit on planes and yep. wait for an attack that's never really happened um, yet. Uh, they use uh, these fracturing bullets. So if you are on a plane and you're wanting to shoot someone, then yes, I would say legitimately you can use the, the fracturing bullets then because it's not it's less likely to go into the fuselage. Okay. Um, so if you are going to shoot someone on a plane, uh, do that. I mean, the, the, the film doesn't say what type of bullet they've used, but I just thought I'd throw that in oh. as an extra piece of information. Thank you for that home ec tip, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> Next time you're thinking of hijacking a plane, use hollow point bullets. Yeah. You're less likely to kill people on the plane until the, the moment you want to. Actually, would hollow point bullets, when they shoot the cockpit, have damaged that more than just a regular bullet? Uh, it depends on penetration, distance, and whether... Well, this is the next thing we notice, that fundamentally shooting a fuel gauge is not going to damage the plane, or the, no. the, the readouts <laughs> is not... I mean, it, you might hit some control panels, I suppose, uh, control wiring in the background, but... Yes, it's not really the best way to disable a plane. What would be the good bit of the plane to shoot then? The window? Just bond. <laughs> like, like. But yeah. Uh, well, if, yeah, if you had one bullet on a plane, um, probably the fuel tank, I'm guessing. That's if you weren't trying to get off yourself. Yes. Um, fans of Airwolf, the show from back in the 80s, will know you can kill Airwolf by shooting in its fuel uh, refill hatch that was a but that's a fictional helicopter is, is that, that was in like, like episode one where you learned airwolf's weaknesses is airwolf the uh, uncle who went to war from budgie the little helicopter yeah <laughs> that was budgie <laughs> got conscripted there was that one episode where they had the christmas with the helicopters and then there is just a ptsd riddled airwolf in the corner just staring blankly out the window while they're all having helicopter turkey so that was airwolf <laughs> uh, 
Well, yeah, so the thing is, you wouldn't, if you wanted to nobble a plane, you wouldn't do it randomly with bullets when you're up there. You, yeah. would, you would have a, a plan already. You would remove a component or... Or put it on nosedive and then just like wedge it there, break off the thing so it can't be un-nosedived. Yeah, you, presumably as part of the planning process, you would arrange whatever sabotage you're going to do. Um, so this hasn't happened. The next stage, which I, I think this is due to it being a small plane, but I just thought it was utterly bonkers to me. So you've got the cockpit, Bond is in the lounge area of the private plane, and then right at the back of the plane, you've got the emergency exit, meaning the pilot has to go past Bond in a really narrow, boxy environment to get to the escape hatch. And Bond is just gonna stop him. He's bigger than this guy, and he could easily tackle him. He's stepping over him like, oh, excuse me, Bond, don't mind me, before he gets the gun kicked out of him. So why not? have the honey trap lead Bond to the back of the plane or the toilets to join the Mile High Club, which is what the honey trap should do. She could pull the gun on him when they're in the toilets at the back of the plane. Yeah, you could have literally just locked him in the toilet, just super glue on the lock and then... No, they couldn't have. Why? Because Jaws was in oh, there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I swear, yeah, Jaws randomly appeared, so he must have been hiding in the toilets, but... Can you imagine if Bond needed to use the toilet at some point during the flight? <laughs> I'm just gonna, just gonna, no, Mr. Bond. But, but, but why not? You'll just have to hold it. <laughs> but it's a private plane. I can, I can, I've charted this plane specifically for this. No, you're just gonna have to hold it, Bond. <laughs> but why? Why does the toilet say engaged? It is just us three on it. That's what Bond impression. Uh, wrong Bond. Yeah, I was gonna say near enough. <laughs> Jaws has to stay perfectly quiet and he is a lumbering ogre of a person just dropping something by accident like he's doing a crossword and drops the pen. What was that? Nothing, Mr. Bond. <laughs> Nothing. Look at this bra. Yeah, it's also Jaws. What does he do on his sort of, you know, if it went well on his, his trip to the pub with all the other assassins? So how was your last assassination? I just sat in a toilet for most of it. <laughs> um... And then, and then it all worked out well, because the, the pilot shot the fuel gauge, and, and then my part in the plan was just to jump out the plane. Because that, that literally was the plan. Yeah. The, the pilot shoots the fuel gauge. So what Jaws is, if it all goes well... Then, then what, what was the point of Jaws being there? Yeah. <laughs> Bond literally panics, uh, presumably, lets people go past with parachutes. Jaws sort of, oh yeah, by the way, I was here as well, and then jumps out. Yeah. Like, it adds, I presume, a backup. But even then, that kind of muddies the water of the plan and also complicates it when it could have been easily streamlined of lock Bond in the bathroom. You don't even need to come up with a convoluted thing. You just say, oh, the latch broke. We tried to get in, but we couldn't get in. The plane dived. We had to save ourselves. So nothing wrong here. Even if they just shot him on the plane, the crash team investigators would go along and they'd be like, oh, this body has a bullet in it. This is clearly an assassination cover-up. Yeah. First thing, yeah, was the logic of the, um, the assassination. We're not really quite sure what they were trying to achieve. Okay. And then the next one was uh, shooting the dials and stuff. Wouldn't, isn't the best way of rendering a plane unflyable. I mean, we don't recommend it. No. Uh, don't, don't do it, because it could if it hits a certain control panel. Because I, I had a flying lesson once. Oh, right. They were saying on these sort of simple planes that actually a lot of it's mechanical. It's not really digital. And certainly back in the 70s or whenever this was, it would have been more mechanical. Yeah. Because it's just more reliable. It's just components that have been used so for so long, and you can check them each uh, between each flight and so on. Yeah. And also, I, I don't think it applies to this type of plane, but 
certainly training planes, you could just cut the fuel and they basically just become a glider. Okay. So you can just land anywhere you can kind of see on the horizon yeah. or up to the horizon. So you just say, oh, right, there's a field over there. I can just glide there. Yeah, exactly. As long as I don't do a loop-de-loop -loop on the yeah. way. That's it. So potentially, I don't know how it works with these commercial planes, but potentially, even if you cut the fuel, if you can still use the uh, ailerons to guide the plane, then you might be able to still do a landing. Well, it's Bond, so we probably would have been able to. Well, yeah, that's it, yeah. Oh, the other thing, sorry. Uh, so if you're in a plane and it just crashes, that's no guarantee that you'll be killed. I mean, it's 99.999% it's sure sort of thing. Looking it up, there has there is a Guinness World Record for the person who has uh, fallen the furthest without a parachute. And that was for Vesna Vulkovic. Uh, who in 1972 was on a Yugoslav DC-9 jet airliner. Oh, yes. Um, yes, yes, yes. That was uh, blown up probably as the result of a terrorist bomb. Um, I say probably because I don't... It's highly likely. But, yeah, it's uh, one of those ones that it probably was a bomb, but no one claimed it. Yeah, that was it. So um, all the other people in the, the plane sort of got sucked out or, you know, and or killed. Uh, but she sort of... She was trapped by a food cart, and uh, that kind of sort of saved her or fixed her in position. And so when the um, cabin depressurized, all the other passengers uh, were sort of blown out of the aircraft and uh, sadly fell to their deaths, but she was trapped in there. Uh, however, she's still in a fuselage of a plane falling, falling at terminal velocity, but it landed in snow, which cushioned the impact. And... I mean, she was in a bad way. She was sort of in a coma and bleeding and yeah. many broken bones. She had to be resuscitated. Yeah, but fundamentally she survived and um, ended up walking. I think she sort of made a full recovery, but she had a bit of a limp. You know, not the worst thing. Consider you've fallen from, what was it? Uh, 10,160 metres. Th um, 33,000 feet. Yeah, and, uh, but also she, was, she couldn't remember any of it, so she was quite happy to get back on planes. <laughs> so, so, um, the, the company she worked for said, yeah, you, you know, thank you for re-volunteering to be an air steward, uh, a steward but um, probably prefer it if you weren't. Uh, we'll, give you a, we'll give you a job sort of negotiating freight contracts. So she had a desk-based job. Okay. Um, but she still got on planes and she was like a national hero. Huh. And, yeah, and, and she was recognised, so she still got on planes and sat next to people. That's incredible. Who were just like, okay, she's on the flight, uh, right. Uh, Lightning can't strike twice, yeah. surely. <laughs> well, that's probably what they were thinking. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so technically you could survive a fall without a parachute. Uh, just a top tip, uh, aim for snow, uh, a swamp or trees. And, and hug a drinks cart. The drinks cart, if you've got one. Uh, just have a few drinks on the way down. They're free. <laughs> but no, uh, trees, snow and swamps will sort of cushion your fall because you want to land on... Uh, you definitely yeah. don't want to land on water because that's basically going to turn into the equivalent of concrete. Yeah, uh, jumping off an oil rig is enough distance to turn the water into concrete. So from 30,000 feet, I dread to think what that would do. So um, the assassination isn't guaranteed as opposed to just shooting him. Yeah. However... They, uh, okay, so they end up falling out, having a parachute fight and so on. Yep. And then Jaws, at the end of it, ends up falling down and landing, supposedly, in a circus net. Uh, it does seem that we're glossing over the parachute fight, but there's really nothing to talk about because they're just falling, 
you stay bond manages to catch up by streamlining his body which is perfectly reasonable that's how skydiving works spread yourself out to slow down put yourself in a narrow to speed up so there's nothing inherently wrong with that the only thing was jaws pulls his parachute cord and it snaps why didn't he use his backup uh yes the, the he's part of the attacker so he should have one because he's planned he's exactly not, <laughs> he's not in a bonds position where it's like i'm just making this up ad hoc <laughs> so, so. uh so yes jaws's parachute fails to open and he plummets into a circus tent uh, causing the whole circus tent to fall in on itself onto a huge crowd which appears to have elephants in the circus so not only would the elephants be terrified the tent which weighs a pretty penny with rigging inside would also damage some people inside it so there may be a, a dodgy cut in the edit there because uh, we've just spent about two minutes just checking that the timings are reasonable yep um so we just checked the whole sort of free fall parachute sequence lasted two minutes 17 seconds between the first fella getting pushed out the plane which bond catches up with and jaws who also catches up with bond so they're all equal at some point yeah in free fall and then bond pulls his parachute and then jaws fall continues to fall at terminal velocity yeah so we're just checking that jaws hasn't fallen for too long Basically. Yeah, it's not like in the Fast and the Furious where they're on the runway, but it turns out when you look at how long, how quickly they were driving and how long they were driving for, it's actually the length of California or something like that. Yeah, so uh, it was 15, 15 seconds to take it to reach terminal velocity. Yep. So they take the first 15 seconds, they cover about 1.2 kilometers. Then the rest of the sequence is... About two minutes. About two minutes. And if you take terminal velocity, which is 54 meters per second, that's about six and a half kilometers. So if you add that together, that's 7.8 kilometers-ish. So that seems reasonable. For a cruising altitude of a very small plane, yeah, uh, that's reasonable. Cool, so that seems fine. <laughs> out, of, out of all of it, that bit's all right. So the most maths you've done is for the bit that there wasn't really an issue with, but the but what about the bit where Jaws falls into the circus tent? Do you have anything on that? Uh, yes. So uh, there is actually a person who has fallen without a parachute and landed on a net, as in a net, not Annette, the woman. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> for Annette. I'm glad she's okay. So on the 30th of July, 2016, Luke Aitkins jumped out of a plane without a parachute and landed in a 30 by 30 meter uh, net. And it's a specially designed one. It's not just a random fishing net. Yeah. And this was a deliberate stunt. And you can see it on YouTube and it's, uh, it's quite heart stopping. Okay, I'll put a link in the show notes for yeah. it. Uh, so this was uh, 7.6 kilometers high. So this was about the same uh, distance as this stunt we've had from Bond. Yeah. Uh, so that's quite a useful thing uh, because uh, they they put in a lot of effort to make sure Luke didn't die. Yes. Oh, spoiler alert, he didn't die. Well, you'd want to. <laughs> That's it, yeah. So uh, they got a civil engineer, uh, who was John Cruikshank, uh, who designed the systems. The original idea was to have like a, a slide that you lands on that you put in the Grand Canyon or something. Yeah. But that would cost absolutely millions. So they said, well, we'll just get four cranes uh, that are about 60 metres high and we will put a net between them. 
that's, that's cheaper. That's cheaper. Uh, so for the net, they went to see Cirque du Soleil, the famous circus. Oh, yes. And asked, what do you use? And they said uh, a, a material called Dyneema, which is sort of stronger than Kevlar. So it's very thin and light. Um, and stretchy. And stretchy. Not too stretchy, but as in... Yeah. You don't want a bungee cord. They So they, they got this Dyneema, made a big net out of it, and then had to just do the calculations. And... They said, well, we're going to slow you down at 4G, as in four times normal gravity. Yeah. So normal gravity is about 10 metres per second, so you're going to slow down at 40 metres per second. I was doing the calculations uh, yesterday and did it wrong, and that's when you phoned me, so that's why I was laughing. Because uh, <laughs> I was trying to work out, like, how, if I was in charge of this, like, engineering thing, how could I do the calculations? Because they're fundamentally physics calculations. And I, I ended up saying he would take like 0.0003 seconds to stop, which is basically just just hitting the earth, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Don't bother with a net. Just put a a big bouncy castle. Yeah, that's it. It was just like, no. uh, So I forgot to carry the one. Uh, I did it again, though, and did work. So you can do the calculations on this, and I worked out that if you want to stop someone at 4G and so on, it's about 1.35 seconds. I'll just get my... A fantastic piece of paper. It looks very much like back of the envelope calculations. Yes, <laughs> it, it, it was. Uh, I'm not going to jump out of a real plane doing this. But yeah, so I, I said, oh, it's 1.35. And then I actually went and timed it on YouTube and it was 1.35. Okay. And top tip, if you're timing it on YouTube, set it to playback at a quarter of the speed <laughs> and then divide by four because otherwise you're sat there with a bloody Casio watch. Pressing beep very fast and very inaccurately. Like oh no, too soon. And if you want to stop someone at 4G, incidentally, you have to uh, flick onto your back just before you land because if you're, you basically you're going to get folded upwards or enveloped by the net. Oh yeah, you are. So if you go face down, you're just going to get. Oh yeah, your, your limbs are going to go the wrong way. So uh, Luke spent a while practicing his gymnastics before he uh, before he did this. Yeah. Um, so you'll see him when he jumps out of the plane, uh, practicing doing flipping, and uh, then he does that towards the end. So Jaws doesn't do that in the film. So no, he's, he's, he's belly up. up. Uh, yeah. And the next thing is, if you're going to stop at four G, you don't want to stop too much faster than that. Six um, G, I think, is when you black out. I can't remember. Yeah, it is. Um, I learned that from later in Moonraker. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't want to stop... Well, you could stop slower. However, if you look at Moonraker and the height of that net, the slower you stop, the more distance you're going to need. Uh, And that net is nowhere near 60 metres high. But it wasn't a net that stopped him. It was a tent with rigging. Yeah, well, there, there was a trapeze under it, and there was a net. Well, that slice so, him in two then, before well, he got uh, to the yeah. net. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's not the best system, anyway. So, that is not accurate in that you can be stopped by a circus tent and a net. Assuming that he was coming in at an angle, and that there was like a sunroof in the tent that happened to be open, and that he missed the trapeze line and hit the net as he managed to flip over and do a little bundle, then he could survive. Probably not, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty certain not. Because um, Luke needed uh, 36.45-ish metres to, oh, okay. to dampen his fall. 
Jaws has about 10 metres. And an elephant. And an, <laughs> there's an elephant underneath. <laughs> Could provide some cushioning. <laughs> so that means a much massive G-force on him. Uh, the net probably isn't Dyneema. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still a circus. It's a is it oh, okay? It might be Cirque du Soleil um, before the invention of. Well, oh no, actually, Dynamo was invented in the sixties, I think. Okay, so it could be a, a net they need, but also you need uh, some sort of absorption. So the net for Luke's fall had air pistons, which on the cranes, which absorb some of the impact. Oh, okay. Uh, they they were going to use bungee cords just to absorb the impact, but that would mean that the net would then flick him back up, <laughs> which is somewhat <laughs> counterintuitive. It just ends up back on the plane. So when you say an air piston, is it in just like letting out air? So it's kind of like one of those pistons like uh, elongating? Yeah, I think so. Okay. I'm not uh, a world expert on air pistons, but yeah, air cushioning. Okay, yeah, I see what you mean. So the conclusion is Jaws is highly unlikely to have survived that fall. However, we do have a case study where someone has survived a fall, but it took a lot of planning and a lot of maths and a lot of preparation. Just like the assassination attempt on Bond. Whatever you heard on the podcast, there was actually 17 times more impressions, <laughs> and they've all been cut. <laughs>